Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard, and I will be your host for this podcast. You know, we're going to put this podcast up on two sites, Gospel Rant and Haven't Heard That Before, HHTB as well. Uh, you can check them both out. HHTB is all about how we can help regular Christians apply the simple, uncluttered gospel to that feeling of being disappointment or failure to God. And many Christians suffer from that. Matter of fact, over two-thirds in some surveys. But you're also feeling shame and shame family of emotions and guilt, identity issues, uh, fear, anxiety. Uh, you know, am, am I ever going to live up to God's standing? So you can check out HHTB at www.spreaker.com forward slash show forward slash haven't uh, without the apostrophe haven't dash heard dash that dash before. Uh, and by the way, if you're listening on HHTB, you may want to check out the Gospel Rant blog and the the other messages, podcasts we gave on Romans, the book of microaggressions. Go to www.spreaker.com forward slash show forward slash gospel dash rant and help us get the word out to others. I mean, if you like this, send it to your pastors, send it to your youth group leaders, send it to your small group Bible studies, send it to your family. Uh, we think this is important stuff and can actually make a difference when, you know, the institutional church of Jesus Christ in the United States is is on a decline. Um, it just is. Okay, so I saw an interesting blog, Eight Common Things That You'll Never See in Public Again After the Coronavirus. It's fascinating to me. You'll pick up a theme, uh, elevator buttons. Right, anything public touches, and you still buy stock in elevator button producers, doorknobs in public buildings, cash registers. Again, anything that two people have to touch, communal pens and styluses, like when you have to sign a document at a bank, uh, chip credit card readers where you have to press a button to accept something. I was at the post office the other day, and and everything's clean and 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 pristine and wiped. But when you put your credit card in, you have to say you're not bringing something explosive. So how about manual light switches, touch-activated soap dispensers? I was at a hospital. Everything is, is up to speed except in the bathrooms. There were, you just had to touch-activated soap dispensers. And here's the last one, and I'm going yay on this one. The end of self-service gas pumps, right? I mean, yay on that one. I think that's fantastic. And I'm old enough to remember when you didn't get out of your car, the service stations were full service stations. When I lived in Pennsylvania and crossed the border into New Jersey, they still have it. It's fantastic. So I really like that one. So why am I bringing that up? Here's the thought. Things in life change to fit the context. As the context changes, there have to be a lot of subsequent changes. Changes in the culture are consequential. And, and both approaches might be good and reasonable in their own context, but things change and we have to maintain flexibility and be smart about it. I call it exegeting the environment, exegeting the, the culture, the context. And so that the gospel can not only fit in, but can speak the language, can pick up the subtle nuances of what people are thinking and feeling. So let me put the gospel in the context. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we were in the middle of a rationalistic, very reasonable, cognitive-based 
secular humanistic society. So if you want to convince somebody that you were right, if the gospel was right, you used persuasion, you used evidence, you used logic to reach people's prefrontal cortex and the idea is if you can convince them, then they will become Christians. That's how we approached evangelism. And it was helpful, but the context has changed. Our context is no longer, well, that's too strong, is less open to the process of being persuaded. In, in Gen Zs and Gen Ys, that process feels shaming to them. I mean, do you think I'm not smart enough? Or I mean, why, why are you saying that? Why do you need to convince me I was wrong? And, and so there's a, a lot of sensitivity. So a lot of stock today is put on how I feel and am I safe with you? And are we dialoguing? I'm not coming to church. Uh, I'm not having coffee with you to be convinced, to get info. I'm coming to church because I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling isolated, suicidal, uh, anxious, and I need some help. And so you have three minutes. Go. Uh, they're not interested in the liturgy as much. They're not interested in discerning what your your uh, the- theology is. They're, they're, they're thinking, I need something for me. The institution of the church also used to be accepted, used to be respected and, you know, put in the middle of the, the neighborhood, but less and less so. And we can argue why that's the case, but it just is the case. We just can't expect people to come to church as part of weekly life. We need to go to them with a quote-unquote product that they see as relevant, interesting, shame-free, and actually stuff that changes their life, scratches their itches. Stuff that looks more like Jesus' self-proclaimed charge and calling in Luke 4, 18 to 19. Listen to this. This is Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Again, sync that with what we've been talking about in Romans and the importance of the Spirit of the Lord. Because the Spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And the poor is, is anybody who's struggling to get a leg up. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And prisoners are anybody trapped in anything. That could be addiction. That could be uh, prisons. That could be relationships. And recovery of sight for the blind. Man, there's lots of blindness out there. To release the oppressed. And this is the, the nature of our society uh, so many people feel oppressed, right? Black Lives Matter. And to proclaim the year of the Lord favors. Boom, this is the big one. To actually convince people, oh, I used the wrong word. But see, I'm stuck in that boomer thinking. To, to proclaim, to let people know that, yes, you too can uh, get God's favor for you as you are. You can hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can hear God say, you're my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. You can do it. We can we can show you how. Well, uh, you know, we used to read Romans ex- almost exclusively to settle the justification debate. The last podcast was about that. Now we dig mine shafts in other areas in Romans, biblical areas, looking for the mother load that scratches the new itches of our world. And Romans is deep enough and broad enough and complex enough to do that. Uh, what difference does the gospel in the hands of the Spirit who lives in me as a Christian make to my day-to-day struggles and significant security and belonging while the world all around me, including my relationships, uh, my brain groans, Romans 8.22. Well, the successful evangelist, pastor, discipler, teacher should be able to answer that question and should be able to actually say it, uh, give voice to it in front of other people. Right? And how many of those people are out there? All right. 
Enough of the tirade. Back to microaggressors in Romans. In the in Gospel Rant and now HHTV, we're looking through key passages in Romans and unpacking the many microaggressors that Paul's bringing up. What do we mean by microaggressors? Well, here's one definition. Microaggression is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults towards any group, particularly culturally marginalized, marginalized groups. So in Paul's case in Romans, the marginalized group are those who still haven't understood or willing to embrace that strictly because of what Jesus did for Christians 2,000 years ago, God has to, technically, has to love us as part of the covenant, which he wrote, uh, has to adore us. And he does, by the way. That's the point. He loves us as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. We can't add to it by behavior. We can't take away from it by behavior. So he loves us as we are, not as we should be or could be. We can't add to it or take away Right now, God in heaven looks down at you, Christian, and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's always been a hard thing for our brains, our conditional-based brains to accept. And so Paul is using, I'm, I'm suggesting, microaggressors to get into dialogue with those folks and shock them into uh, getting into the dialogue, right? So... Some of these things are offensive. If, if you're one of those people who thinks, no, God loves me better if I fill in the blank, or if I only did fill in the blank, my spiritual life would just take off. If you're one of those people, and so many of us are, then you're gonna, you should be offended by what Paul says in Romans. And we'll look at, and we're in the middle of Romans 8, right, that hub chapter. Uh, we're at verse 5. And by the way, just, we're not, Going verse by verse through Romans, I'm, I'm cherry-picking microaggressors. So we're, we did eight, 1 and 2 last podcast. We're at 5, 6, and 7 uh, this time. So let me read them. Those who live according to the sinful nature. By the way, this is NIV, if you're curious. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Man, we're going to get to it. That's a huge poke, nor can it do so. It's not even able to. So briefly, doing God's law doesn't get you there. All right. So, uh, verse 5. For those who kata antes... In the Greek, kata is a marker of spatial aspect, you know, so I'm going to this city. Uh, so those who lean into, those who travel, those who are in the realm of, antes, and that's being or living, it's present participle. So those who are leaning into being, the flesh, which sinful nature, which is just one word, sarks, the flesh, which refers to anything non-spiritual, non-associated with God. These are folks who are on their own. doesn't mean they're evil. It just means they're living life on their own. They're running by their own brain, their own wants and desires and plans and logic, their sense of good and bad, common sense. We would, free will fits into this, right? I mean, again, Paul is poking fingers and eyes here. Those who are living according to their own free will, we might say. Uh, and that would, that would include atheists, uh, secular humanists, agnostics, who have nothing to do with God or the Spirit. Or better, 
They just want to make their own life decisions. God bless America, right? They want to live by our own free will. And these, of course, will froneo sarks, he says. They're going to froneo, judge things. They're going to see through the world through the lens of whatever, atheism, secular humanism, their reason, their context, their family, uh, their race, their position in society, their free will, their opinions, their opinions of right and wrong. And, and all those things are going to, to be what causes them to make decisions. That makes sense? So they're on their own. That's what Paul is saying. Those who are on their own act like it. And they're limited by their context and capability more than we know, right? I mean, free will is a theoretical concept. All of us are, are slaves, if you will. That's, a, again, a, a bad word today. But we're, we're in some ways affected by our context and by what we understand. And by the way, by the, the, the bad things that have happened to us, you know, relationships have hurt us. And so our brains have certain mechanisms, subconscious. And, and so nobody's brain is free. Nobody's will is totally free, right? That's just a, a concept we toss out there that's so theoretical. Uh, we might mean something else, but there is no such thing technically as free will. We're limited by our capability and context and history, uh, right? So they're going to live according to their brain direction. They're going to do what feels right. And that's the problem because our brain stores all kind of things that lead to some very destructive behaviors on a daily basis, right? Reactionary behavior and so forth, relational issues. And so we end up with a world filled with racism and prejudice. And that's all because people are living and doing things on their own and feeling justified. Or it's subconscious and they don't see it. They're in denial. So remember Paul's testimony in Romans 7, just a few verses before this. Paul is living in the realm of, of his human brain and, and free will, and it's not working. He knows what he wants to do, but something's happening inside of his brain that's causing him to do the opposite. But, Paul says, the ones who are of the Spirit, those who are leaning into the Spirit, those who are uh, within the Spirit realm of influence and authority and direction, those who are in sync with him, and we're not perfectly in sync with him until heaven, but... There's an empowerment and a direction, a new motivation, a new heart that comes from the Spirit. And we begin to see the world and people around us, troubled people around us, hurting people around us, uh, reactionary people around us from a different context, right? God loves sinners. We don't, but he does. And when we start seeing people through the Spirit's eyes, it makes a difference. And and we're, we're making choices and decisions that seem to look more like him than than me, not perfectly, sometimes, that reflect his desire and motivation, right? You know, decisions that look like, when it's all done, loving God and loving others more than I did before. There's a change and transformation. And maybe often, even though the decisions are contrary to my brain's normal way of thinking, right? My, my brain would normally go, hey, what about me? What do I get out of it? I need some credit here. And something's happening inside of me that looks more like Jesus, all right, skip to Romans 8, 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Eight, those controlled by the sinful nature just cannot please God. Oh, man, those are just, <laughs> he's picking fights. So uh, I'm going to unpack those verses because they're too churchy. They're too theological, right? I, I don't know if we can even use the word sin anymore. It's got such baggage. So uh, track me. So, 
what Paul is saying is, instead of saying secular, a sinful mind, I'm going to say the secular, humanistic, free will mindset, phroneo sarx. By the way, meaning normal human way of, of doing life. This is where God finds me, and this is where I live still regularly on a day-to-day basis. It's not necessarily evil. That's that's where we go with this, or or good. It's just life. This is how most of us live. As and we don't depend upon God's power. We, we really don't. We're not sure how to. And so our brain is, is taking in information and is mushing it around in that blender we call a brain with all of the history and all the emotions and all the reactionary behavior. And it says, okay, do this. And, and you end up with Romans 7, right? And maybe we do good things from our brain's perspective. But, but you know what? Maybe we do selfish things and, and justify it. Maybe we have huge blind spots. But the idea is we don't have that objectivity of the spirit or the spirit's heart, uh, other-oriented heart, the, the Luke 4 heart of Jesus, that the goal is to set people free, right? We don't have that internal, powerful leadership and motivation that comes only from God, right? So, and by the way, I could be religious. I could be aware of what the law says, and that could be in my brain. And my brain says, like in Romans 7, I know what's good. I want to do good, but I'm just not doing it. So... Knowing the law doesn't mean necessarily I'm buying into it or motivated by it or I see the the real core of it, loving others. I'm not loving others. I'm loving me. I'm not loving God. I'm loving me. That's the bottom line. So these are good people. They may know about God. They may they even may be able to do an essay on what God wants in their prefrontal cortex, but they don't have that wonderful feeling that God adores them. They're missing that. They're independent. Even though they may be children of God, they could be orphans. So this is not just being indifferent to God or could care less about God. Paul says that if you're in this state, you're actually, there's something in your brain that's antagonistic to God, right? And that's a huge microaggressor because you got to push back on that one, right? I'm even pushing back. We all know people who good people, caring people, good neighbors, giving people, sacrificial people, but they're atheists or agnostics or secular humanists. Or, or at this point in time, they're, they don't know that God loves them. They're, they may be doing these things to get God's to love them. And when God is brought up, they don't blow a fuse or get angry. They don't become hypercritical. They don't seem to speak about God with any negative emotion. They just, they just don't acknowledge him. They don't seem antagonistic to me, Right. But Paul is saying that at a certain place in their brain, they're hostile to God. That's really interesting. They have ultimate daddy issues. That's the point. And it's fascinating. And by the way, it's over my pay grade. At this point, I'm not sure I can explain how or why. I'm just taking note of it. Uh, and again, this is not Paul's key point, so I'm not going to belabor it. Uh, we're going to keep moving on. But that's what Paul says. They cannot, and by the way, he's talking to religious leaders there uh, primarily. He might be talking to elders in the Church of Rome. He might be talking to the Sunday school teachers. I'm just saying. And and they can't even submit to the law. They think they can. They know the law and they say they, they can do it. Back to Romans 7, Paul is proof text of it. And to be clear, it's not a matter of will or being convinced. Paul is saying they can't do it. They don't have the power. They don't have the capacity. Really? That's another microaggressor, Paul. You're not going to win a lot of friends this way. What do you mean that they're not able, right? I mean, come on, secular humanistic thinking is I can do whatever I want to do if I work hard enough. And Paul says, no, it's not true. 
uh, verse 8. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And by sinful nature, remember, he's talking about those people who are trying to do good on their own. They're free willers. And they're also atheists and secular humanists. But Paul says real clearly, you can't do enough to, to get God to notice you and say, you please me. No matter what you do or say or how much you do, you're just not going to pull it off. You're not going to enter into a favored relationship with God. God's not going to look down upon you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You're my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Paul is saying there's nothing you can do. You can go to worship. You can sing songs. You can listen to Christian radio. doesn't matter. So your choices are not the things that God positively takes notice of. Something's missing. And and this is the point. These people cannot be saved or adopted as long as they're depending upon their own reason and will, in spite of what we thought in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Well, are we saying that salvation of God is not reasonable? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, totally. That uh, reaching people's prefrontal cortex is going to somehow convert them. Uh, no. What have we been thinking why would it even be slightly reasonable for God to adopt you and to love you, to adore you as you are in your sin, in your fallen shortness? <laughs> Remember, God hates sin, but he loves you as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son of the Father. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. You didn't earn it. We've been pretending that this is reasonable and laying out these logic statements. I'm suggesting that it's highly unlikely and, and impossible, frankly, and yet it's true. Ask, go back into the first temple days and ask a biblical scholar uh, there, right, who lived there, and see, if, see their response to how reasonable this is. I mean, they would think you're crazy. They would think you're a heretic, to say God could just find sinners and love them, give them new hearts, fill them with his spirit. Are you kidding me? And and then continue to love them even though they stumble along and keep sinning? Come on. And look, we we bridge that, well, we attempt to bridge the gap with, with bumper stickers, religious bumper stickers, such as God hates the sin but loves the sinners. Look, come on, really? What in the world does that mean? How do you differentiate that? How do I do it? What muscle group? Come on, really? It's impossible. It's glorious, and it's true. Uh, is it? Is the is the gospel logical? Uh, Paul didn't think so when he wrote the Corinthians, uh, chapter one, verse eighteen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But he never says it makes sense. First uh, Corinthians one twenty one. A couple of verses later, for since in the wisdom of God, right, that thing that's way beyond us, listen to, to Job, the world through its wisdom, meaning making sense, didn't know him. You, can't, you didn't get there. God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. That convinced them, Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty three. but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But somehow in the 70s and 80s, we thought we could convince people that it was reasonable. Look, it didn't. It's way beyond com comprehension, Ephesians 3. So don't, but like, don't shoot the, the messenger here. Paul says so. 
But then what hope do those of of the will, right, the free willers and and who lean upon their reason and, and want to be convinced? Can they be saved? Yes, of course, but not by elaborate arguments and proofs. By the way, the, the elaborate arguments and proofs are good, but they're, they don't have power. They can't save anybody uh, because people can't be saved by their free wills, by choice. Right. We've misunderstood that. There's only one way for sec. By the way, choice is good, but the choice is empowered by the Holy Spirit who is converting somebody. I'll say some more. There's only one way for free willers, for independents, for secular humans and atheists to enter into this adoring relationship with God, this strange adoring relationship with God. It won't surprise you. It's the work of the Spirit of Christ. Period. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, right, by your free will, by your mind, by your reason, but by the Spirit. Really? If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if you're a Christian, it does, and he says that next. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. All right, so... Here's my rough interpretation, translation of Romans 8, 9. If, however, you're not living your life out of reason alone, your own good choices, secular humanism or atheism, rather you are in with by the Spirit, the Spirit dwells within you. So if you're noticing loving your neighbor and, and loving God in a way that's just not common to you, that's that's a proof text that the Spirit dwells in you. You see the difference Again, in the United States, we, we always fall back to reason, uh, transforming the mind. We say that has to do with, with you reading your Bible more and, and the like. Yeah, no, it, it has to do with the Spirit empowering you, giving us new hearts, giving us love for our neighbors, making us feel loved by God. All those things that really important that we haven't emphasized for decades. Uh, so the difference, the deciding difference between secular humanists and children of God is one has a spirit in their inner being, not affecting them, not perfectly, but noticeably, and the other does not. All right, uh, the, the second part of nine. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, this is my interpretation. If anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So literally, for if one does not have the spirit of Christ, one is not in Christ. Right? So how do you know if you're a Christian? There's only one thing. The Spirit of Christ is in you. That's the objective thing. And the Spirit of Christ is doing his thing, changing you, transforming you, perfecting you slowly. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Meaning, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, and by the way, it's not Jesus in you, right? He's in heaven. It's his Spirit in you. Uh, meaning you're adopted, saved, alive in Christ, you're spiritual, and it's the Spirit alone that makes righteousness, this right relationship, happen somehow. This is theological and very practical. And if this is true, then this is biblical backing for us to pray when we're witnessing, to pray that the Holy Spirit would make the lost and wandering, overconfident, secular humanist, free willer, reasonable person see but also would come to dwell in him or her. 
I remember witnessing to somebody who was so rational, so reasonable, and he would ask question after question after question after question after question, and I'd come up with answer after answer after answer. It was a great dialogue, but he could never be convinced because he saw how outlandish it was. He had daddy issues that God would actually love him. That was unreasonable to him. And and at the time, and this was 50 years ago or 40 years ago, I, I was trying to make him see the reasonability of it. Now I would approach it so differently. I would go, yeah, it's unreasonable, but it's true. And let the Holy Spirit and pray that the Holy Spirit would enter into him and make him see, make him feel loved. Uh, a different part of his brain from a neuroscience perspective. And Paul seems to be saying that that they need the Spirit. And I'm not here trying to suggest any ordo salutis, if you're a theologian, order of salvation, uh, right? I have wildly strong opinions on ordo salutis, but I'm saying that any ordo salutis that you embrace, whatever your denomination and theological bent might be, if it doesn't have the Holy Spirit in every category being the active agent, uh, empowering that step, that, that order, then you're missing Paul's point. The Holy Spirit has his fingers in every step of whatever ordo salutis you come up with, right? And the Spirit is just all over it, and it's time we give him his due. Verse 11, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, see, the Spirit did that. The Spirit did that. The same Spirit who's in you, he should be noticeable, so, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who lives in you. Meaning this is what he does. This is his wheelhouse. He raises the dead from life. It doesn't make any sense. We don't have the science to pull this off. And by dead, it's this independent, reasonable, rational thinking where you make all the choices, um, right? It's more, it's more American, you know, free will. Um, the Spirit's supposed to be doing something miraculous in us. Right? And, and I'm assuming that this happens at the beginning of our faith journey that moves us from secular humanism to sonship, but it keeps on going experientially for the rest of our walk here on earth. This is spiritual formation. Why we call it spiritual formation. It's of the Spirit. Not just we do spiritual things like meditate and read our Bible. It has It has everything to do with a new relationship with the Spirit where we're depending more upon him. We're asking him to give us power, make me love. All the things we do at the gospel app, the, the prayer cards, the bookmarks. Verse 13, for if you live according to the sinful nature, right? So if you live your life according to free will, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. All right, here it is again. How do we put the, to death the deeds of our body? By the way, it's deeds, not misdeeds. The The translator actually you know, puts a mark on it, suggesting that it's it's the bad things of the body. But let me remind you that God and the law are perfectionist. All of your choices and actions, all of them, no matter how good they may be from your perspective, they fall way short from God's perspective, right? We always fall short. As someone said, we should repent of our sins and our righteousness, so our misdeeds and our deeds. Uh, or let me put it differently, Jesus died for all of my deeds and misdeeds, and he needed to. So how do I defeat daily sin and shame and guilt? Well, it's living by the Spirit, first and often. 
And Paul is just going out of his way using metaphor after metaphor to show us how critical the Spirit is to Paul and the Christian walk. If we, if we are going to love God, the Spirit has to make us. If we're going to love our neighbors the way God wants, the Spirit has to make us. Husbands love their wives. It's going to be the Spirit who makes us. Wives love husbands. Same. Well, have you heard that? Have you been told that? We're, we're, we're not trying to develop this, this spiritualized independence. We're actually leaning into dependence as we are. Uh, the, the Christian walk is not becoming more Jesus-like. It's actually becoming more dependent upon Jesus. Those are two different things. I believe, hear this, microaggression alert. It's spiritual malpractice for pastors to not mention the work of spirit every Sunday, every counseling visit, every teaching, every book, every blog, every podcast. If we teach right and wrong without taking uh, humanly influenced Christians by the hands walking them back into the realm of the Spirit, inviting them back, giving them baby steps, uh, modeling the Spirit's control and influence, His motivation, His power, uh, as best we can. And then, if, if, that, if we don't do that on a regular basis, we're condemning them to bounce back to independence, to bounce back to leaning on their free will and reason, acting out of their flesh, secular humanism, doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's all of their deeds, not just misdeeds, this might include good deeds, but the point is not miraculous. It's not going to change the world. It's not going to change families. It's not big in a, in a big way. They will not ever feel that God loves them, favors them, without the active daily secret workings of the Spirit. Now, to be clear, if you're a Christian, let's assume you are, let's say that you're not experiencing this. You're not experiencing this devotion and adoration of God. I mean, we know it in human relationships. We should begin to feel it more often in our relationship with God. If you're not feeling how much God loves you, well, why? Maybe you messed up. Maybe you think you messed up. Maybe the critical voice in your brain is jumping all over you, a past event. I mean, who knows? But you're not feeling like an adored child. And so a decision is before you. Do I do this deed or not do this deed? You slide back into the habit of trying to decide what is right and a good thing to do. I mean, you've been a Christian for 50 years. You should know right and wrong, right? So it's important to your brain because you want to get it right because you really want to feel God's favor again. And per secular humanism, uh, the way you get there is by doing things that God likes. Enough anyway that he would begin to pay attention and be less critical, uncross his arms, and he would eventually give you a holy out of boy or out of girl, right? At least a probationary one, to get back on God's good list, like Santa more than God. And you surely don't want to do the wrong thing and fall out of favor and feel shame and look away. So according to Paul, you can't get there from here on your own. Making your best choice will never do. It's, it's of the flesh. It's sarks. And it leads to death, meaning this, this absence of relationship, the presence of shame and feeling like you fall short. And it's against God's will, meaning you'll never be sure if you did enough. The powerful critical voice in your head will just hammer you and me too, because it's not good enough. Right? And, uh, and the critical voice is right. It isn't good enough. This is God we're talking about. But if you are in, by, with, leaning on, and sink, empowered by, depending upon the power of the Spirit of Christ who is in you, then you're beginning to know and feel that God loves you no matter what you decide, whatever deed you pick. And it changes how you decide. 
you do not do right to get God's favor. You do right because you have God's favor. And either way, you're dancing. Well, how do I get more there? Oh, that's bad grammar. But anyway, you know what I mean? <laughs> Paul models it in Ephesians 3, 14 or 21. You ask. Um, yes, God, yes, the Holy Spirit to make you access power, begin to know the height and width and length and depth of love of Christ. All right. That's how you ask. Do you want to learn more how to ask? Here's another shameless plug for the online experiential path that we created for this very purpose for all Christians who are stuck in the flesh, who are stuck in Romans 7, who are stuck in this mindset. If that's you, go to www.the-dance.org right now and go through the dance. It's so simple. It's designed to give you baby steps to take you from Romans 7 today to Romans 8 today. You can do it. Uh, And you're not the only one. It only takes a couple hours. It's online. It's confidential. Any smart device. There's a charge, but it's a fraction of the counseling visit. And by the way, it gives you 30 days. You can go through it as many times as you want. Satisfaction is fully guaranteed. If you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. Simple. We're trying to help. You will learn so much and pick up some helpful techniques. It's evidence-based. We give you entrance surveys before you get into the dance and an exit survey immediately after. And we'll send you the the results according to uh, uh, scientific measurements to to see how you've moved from the spectrum Romans 7 to Romans 8. Many people have already been helped. And we just launched it in late 2020. All right. We'll pick this up next time. Uh, This has been a long podcast. Thank you for bearing with us. Do you like what you're hearing? Get it out to others. Just send an email, direct them to the to the speaker sites, and, and they can hook up themselves. They can ask to be notified when a new podcast hit the streets. Thanks for listening. Take heart, child of God. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? I mean, you are called by God, and aren't we all praying the big prayer, Here I am, Lord, send me. So if we put two and two together, you've got a message to deliver, my friend. Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, art to make, or businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. I use my mic like a machete, so if you don't like to get your toes stepped on or pushed off cliffs to finally jump on in with Jesus, I may be too much for you. But if you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or lifeaudio.com today.